Welcome to Thought Leaders Unplugged, a podcast series that examines the most pressing issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in higher education. Brought to you by the University of Maryland's Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. My name is Kaya McDermott, pronoun she, her, hers, and I serve as our podcast program manager and a staff consultant with the center. And I'll be one of your co-hosts. My name is Tamia Webster. I use she, her pronouns. I serve as a staff consultant in the center and one of your co-hosts for the podcast. And my name is Roger Worthington. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland and executive director for the Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Let's start with a little background about the center and the podcast series, Thought Leaders Unplugged. Absolutely. We got to talk about the center and who we are. The Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education has a four-pronged mission, functioning as a national think tank, a research center, an academic institute, and a consulting organization for equity, justice, inclusion, diversity, access, and anti-racism in higher education. You might ask, what is a Thought Leader Summit? Every two years, the center holds a meeting of higher education experts to discuss some of the most challenging issues in the field. We discuss issues ranging from affirmative action to campus climate to anti-racism to difficult dialogues, teaching and learning, and more. In each episode of our podcast, we have candid conversations with renowned thought leaders at the forefront of higher education equity and justice efforts. Our guests will share innovative strategies, personal stories, and research-driven solutions that inspire us to reimagine a more equitable future for all learners and for the faculty, staff, and administrators who serve them. Join us as we go beyond surface-level discussions and engage in thought-provoking conversations that challenge the status quo and promote meaningful experiences. In our second episode, we will have an interview with Chancellor Nancy Cantor from Rutgers University, Newark. She'll talk about anchor institutions as one way of framing our conversations about equity and justice in higher education. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. Again, I'm Roger L. Worthington. I am Tamia Webster. And I'm Kaya McDermott. Join us for Thought Leaders Unplugged. episode of Thought Leaders Unplugged, we focused on the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action and its implications within higher education. And in this episode, we continue along that path, building on some of the immediate analyses and conclusions that arise from that decision with an interview from Nancy Cantor, one of the icons of higher education and former provost at the University of Michigan when the Gratz and Gruder Supreme Court decisions came out in 2003. This was such a powerful interview with someone like Nancy Cantor, who has such a depth of knowledge and expertise to help move higher education forward in the wake of this decision. Her work in the past 20 years has focused on anchor institutions, a topic she covers during her interview with us during the Thought Leader Summit on Anti-Racism Dialogues. Dr. Nancy Cantor is the chancellor of Rutgers University, Newark. But she's not your ordinary chancellor. She's a force of nature. Her mission, to harness the potent blend of diversity, research, excellence, and public engagement. Dr. Cantor envisions universities as more than centers of knowledge. She sees them as catalysts for equitable growth, beacons of racial justice, and champions of creative expression. 
Her work is nothing short of inspiring, and her influence reaches far beyond the classroom. Before she took up the reins at Rutgers, Dr. Cantor etched her name into history books as the first woman chancellor at both Syracuse University and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. But her leadership wasn't confined to the halls of academia. She championed cross-sector collaborations and publicly engaged scholarship, redefining what it means for a university to be truly woven into the fabric of its surroundings. In a world that often resists change, Dr. Cantor emerged as a leading voice in the ongoing struggle for inclusion and diversity. But today, you're in for a treat. We have the privilege of delving deep into Dr. Cantor's remarkable journey. We'll explore her insights on universities as anchor institutions, her thoughts on pressing issues in higher education, and her unwavering commitment to making a difference in the world. She's incredibly smart, especially when it comes to thinking about and implementing the work the way it needs to be done the way it should have been done for many years before the most recent SCOTUS decision. There are so many pieces of what she has to say in this interview that help provide a foundation for moving forward. So without further ado, I invite you to join us as we embark on a captivating conversation with a true visionary, Dr. Nancy Cantor, right here on Thought Leaders Unplugged. So what I worry about is this dogma of colorblind, so-called colorblind is what I say. Yeah, of course. This nation has never been colorblind. This world has never been colorblind. Right. There's absolutely nothing colorblind about how we have acted over centuries. Are you going to tell me we're suddenly going to really be, quote, colorblind? Right. If we were colorblind... Banks would lend to people of color at the same rate that they lend to white people. Yes. If we were colorblind, the prisons in our country would not be full of people of color. Right. So colorblind is what I'm more afraid of than the loss of affirmative action per se as an admissions tool. Gotcha. Because colorblind is a dogma that spreads and gives validity, face validity in people's minds to racism. And if we see anti-racism as about systemic racism, not just about a few people who say stupid things, they're racist, okay, fine. But that's not, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in dismantling systemic racism. Exactly. Our institutions of higher education are microcosms of the larger society, right? Absolutely. We act on and reproduce the inequities that are already naturally occurring in society by the systems in which we enact that create our elitism and our pursuit of elitism and all sorts of other problematic practices in our institutions. Exactly. What we reward, who we think is smart what we see as valuable, right. getting our rank, who we care about. <laughs> yeah. Those test scores. When we were putting together the cases um, in Gruder and Graz, we did all kinds of analyses about the predictive validity of those SAT tests. And let me tell you, what people are arguing over are 
middle range scores that have no predictive validity whatsoever. Yeah. You know, that word colorblind came up over and over again in the Supreme Court decision and, and was used as a way to disassemble affirmative action, to remove race-conscious decision-making and admissions from what is currently legal and from the processes of creating greater uh, compositional diversity in our institutions, much less going to um, a more inclusive model where people from... Uh, historically marginalized and minoritized groups are um, given access to our institutions and uh, the ability to um, become part of. I think the Supreme Court can fundamentally continue to use the word colorblind because they don't see white as a race. Like, right. I, I don't even know what else to say about that. <laughs> like, the only people that are identified as raced people are black people, Latinx people, people of color. But white is a race. And to say that you are colorblind as white people continue to ascend, it's a lie. It's not real because I am black. I don't even understand that made up world that people are able to walk around and say, we live in a colorblind society. White is a race. And when Nancy Cantor is talking about colorblindness, who are we talking about? Right. And she ties it, though, to, you know, other important constructs in the higher education space. Right. Achievement. Right. Absolutely. What is it? How is achievement defined? And the notion of colorblindness fits up nicely to this notion of meritocracy, really yes. the myth of meritocracy. Yes. Right. The the idea that these SAT scores and GPAs and, you know, sort of um, institutional rankings that we can get out of being selective institutions and more and more selective institutions. The very predictive validity of those test scores are presumed to be colorblind and meritocratic, and that's problematic. We have to overcome that in these institutions in order to make any progress. And I also, I, yes, all those things are absolutely true, and but I also think we, as to me as a practitioner, I'm gonna to try to make that intervention anytime someone puts a microphone and gives me a listening ear to remind white people and to remind us that white is a race and that there's no such thing as colorblindness. But I think we also have to start from a premise that white folks are raced as well. America is a racialized country. <laughs> there's nothing more racialized than the United States of America. And to try to pretend that white people are not raced, that we live in a colorblind society. <laughs> yes. Continue. Go ahead. Say more. All I got is curse words. <laughs> no, I'm not going to But in this, you know, Toni Morrison talks about how racism steals your time. This is still in our time. It's still in our time. We are literally trying to make sense of something that we know doesn't make any sense. This whole situation around affirmative action is we are deeply trying to make sense of something that does not make sense at all. To say you can take in all these other considerations of a human being, but you can't take in this one thing. Right. That when I walk into a room, you're going to describe to me as, you know, the one who wore the black dress? <laughs> <laughs> 
in the yellow shirt. What are you gonna say? The dark skinned black woman will lock. Well, and and you know, let's let's be honest. You know, when the when the Supreme Court says colorblind, they mean it in a totally different way than How you they and mean I do. It? And and you know, the, it's Help it's a, it's a, well, it's an argument that I don't understand either. I mean, it's okay. an it's Thank an argument you. that collapses in on itself, as Art Coleman said. Right? Okay. It, it's it's got you know, sort of legal and ethical entropy to it. Okay. It collapses on itself when you say you take away the checkbox. Yes. Right for race-conscious admissions, and yet you want to make sure that it's still available for an applicant to talk about the, the racialized experiences that they've had, it, it's a, an argument that's collapsing in on itself. And right? fundamentally what that is going to do, it is going to force a Roger or Tamiya, two people, to read in between the lines on admission applications instead of being able to say, here's a bulk of black students, here's a bulk of Latinx students, now let's look at the other thing that's gonna get them here. Well and and again, you know, part of the part of the fundamental underpinnings of this decision is the ad- adherence to individualistic outcomes, right? And and that above and beyond the more collectivistic outcomes that institutions were trying to establish by achieving diversity within their institutions. The expectation and, and the research showing that, in fact, diverse institutions actually have better outcomes. Period. Period. And yet, that's part of what the Supreme Court did in making this decision was, was say, no, we don't want the broader um, institutional objectives to be at the forefront or at the center of this decision. They want the individualistic decisions to be what counts. And that's where you know, the zero-sum game component of this comes in that we talked about in episode one as well, the idea that the Supreme Court really sees outcomes yeah. as a zero-sum game. So I like to take what I call an outside-in perspective on the the institution. Uh That is, what does the public need higher education to be? And when you think about anti-racism work, the public needs, and certainly in a place like Newark, the public needs recognition by our institutions of the systemic racism that has been embedded in our practices, in our norms, in our thoughts, everything about us, right? right. We, we're not different just because we're incredibly diverse. Right. We are still an institution of this world and yeah. of this country. So when I think about anti-racism work, I think very much from the community and the public into the institution in terms of who are our students, Mm-hmm. Who should we be serving? Who should we be creating educational opportunity right. for? What are the lived experiences, the assets that they bring to the table? Right. As opposed to what I would call the traditional higher ed approach, which is, ooh, let we're going to give you something. Right. They're going to give us something. Mm-hmm. They're going to bring lived experience that really enriches the educational experience, the scholarly experience, and the ability of the institution, of scholars in the institution, to do publicly engaged scholarship that changes the world. That's right. So we're creating not only the next diverse generation of innovators and leaders who hopefully will dismantle the systems of racism that have been so embedded, 
but we're also creating a new generation of scholars to collaborate with community and in community right. to do what we call co-creation. Co-creation. You know, to, to create some third spaces. Mm -hmm. Not spaces we own or you own, but spaces we collaborate in together. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, we've had some parts of this conversation in other contexts before, and I want to continue some of that dialogue that mm -hmm. we've engaged in in other spaces and, and elaborate on some of the things that you're saying right now. Because, you know, when I think about um, the concept of diversity and inclusion, and especially of inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. Inclusion sometimes is sort of mistakenly assumed of bringing those unfortunate others into our institutions and helping them become a part of our institutions and then socializing them to our institutions in ways that help to elevate them and then they can become part of our system. Can you speak to that a little bit? I know you've criticized that. Yes, I have, and, <laughs> and you know that well. You have, you have hit what for me is, is really fundamental, which is the ivory tower elitism of higher education has been based on the notion that we are going to give a gift mm -hmm. to this world. Elitism. And so when we think about diversity and inclusion, so often it's, you know, my favorite phrase about this that I criticize, and I think you've heard me say this before, is the notion that we're going to have students who rise above adversity. Right and come into our institutions. It's that savior mentality. It's exactly. It's the savior mentality. And similarly, if you flip that, then when we go out into communities, we're the cult of the expert, as Harry Boyd says, and we're doing charity, right? right. That's equally obnoxious. And I, I think it's really important to think about how do you transform our institutions to have an asset approach, an asset framework, not a right. deficit framework. Yes. I mean, so much of diversity and inclusion work, and, and look, we all are part of that. So I am not, we're all, we are all as much the creators of the issues as we are the solvers. So I am, I, this is not meant to be a, a sort right. of patronizing sure. perspective right. on that. But so much of the generations of diversity and inclusion work has been a kind of, we're going to let you in. Right. We're going to save a spot. Mm -hmm. We're going we're gonna to make sure we have the right people at the table. Now there's, as you well know, I believe in numbers. I mean, I believe yeah, that... Say more about that. I believe that literally a critical mass of diverse lived experience right. and the individuals who bring that is absolutely critical, critical to really making our institutions and our communities the vibrant places they can be. Right. So without I'm critical come back to mass. That because there's something important there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> without critical mass, we can't do anything. Right. Because then it's the solo representative then all the things we know, I'm a social psychologist, all the things we know, Claude Steele's work, stereotype threat, all the things that will make it just a checkoff list 
as opposed to a transformation of the institution. So critical mass matters, numbers matter. But given that, you then have to go further and really understand the assets of of diverse lived experiences that can be brought to the table. And then you gotta flip the table and say, who's out there in the community that we can collaborate with? What's the publicly engaged scholarship that our new generations of the professoriate, who hopefully will be diverse, can really co-create with? We're not gonna solve housing affordability in Newark by simply telling people that they really should own houses and create intergenerational wealth. What? Really? <laughs> really? You know? Yeah. So, you know, let me come back to this, this question of critical mass, right? So critical mass is in part based on this notion of compositional diversity. And, you know, I've, I've talked about how compositional diversity has oftentimes among maybe senior administrators, too many senior administrators in higher educational institutions become the primary metric, the sole metric of whether or not they are achieving their quote unquote diversity goals, right? It's very hard to get people to see that critical mass is necessary but not sufficient. Right. And that was the basis for saying in Gruder and Graz that affirmative action was critical as a first way of getting the diverse values of educational experience. That is, the value of diversity for the educational experience Right wouldn't happen without a critical mass. Exactly. So, yes, numbers matter. But lived experience and interactions matter even more. Right. So if all you're doing is checking off a list and having a number, right. that isn't going to do it. Yes. So mm-hmm. compositional diversity, then, is a means to an end. Right? It helps exactly. to achieve a certain kind of context within which learning is more effective. It, it's, it's, it's more possible for people to learn at a higher level in a diverse environment. And there are study after study after study exactly. that demonstrate that. But I think, you know, you said it so beautifully. The issue is context, right? right. It's the context you're creating. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's where social psychology comes in. The reason numbers are important is they shift the context. And then if you go back to the Gruder decision that O'Connor gave, she made the point that until you had a diverse population in the institution, the pathways to legitimate outcomes for higher education would not be there. They wouldn't be open. The legitimacy of our institutions, of our civic organizations, would not stand up to any test Mm -hmm. unless you had initially a sense that it was an open place, that people really could come who really are out there, that you really were reaping the benefits of the talent pool out there. Yeah. 
into me what she just said there. Well, part of lived experience, but matters. Help me understand how that works in the context of a system like a university. Well, what she just did, actually, and this was recorded months before the Supreme Court decision came down, what she essentially was saying is that we have to take away the checkbox mentality, which, strangely, sort of mirrors what Students for Fair Admissions Mm -hmm. uh, wanted out of this case, Mm -hmm. to remove the checkbox from race-conscious decision-making. And then what the... um, Chief Justice Roberts' decision really did was included experience, lived experience, as the one way that institutions are still allowed to take race into consideration. If you're talking about your race in the context of your lived experience, mm-hmm. of how there might be barriers that you've overcome to gaining access mm-hmm. to higher education or succeeding in life, um, to accounting for the achievements that you've had in your own educational endeavors. Um, those kinds of lived experiences are fair game for institutions to include and to evaluate in their admissions decisions. Um, but then it has to go beyond that, right? right? It's not just about achieving critical mass. That's necessary, but not sufficient. You have right. to go beyond that. You have to make sure that what comes next is um, in, providing a context and an environment for success right. for students when they, once they arrive at your institution. That's the inclusion quick question that people continue to miss. Roger, I think from your expertise, you should probably try to explain what does inclusion look like. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think Nancy's saying some things. Inclusion, I, I, can, I know what it feels like, but I think from a theoretical perspective, when we're saying now let's get to this inclusion piece, let's tell them what inclusion is when we're talking. So when you think about what inclusion mm-hmm. really is, um, oftentimes, you know, and we said this as part of the interview, oftentimes it has to do with how, helping to acculturate right. to our institutional cultures right. and experiences and identities. And really the, the way that inclusion should work is by bringing people into our institutions from a variety of different backgrounds and helping them achieve not belonging, but ownership, mm. right? How do we incorporate everybody into the governance procedures, the mm-hmm. shared governance procedures of our institutions? So there is representation mm-hmm. of various different cultures and races and backgrounds and um, perspectives, mm-hmm. right? Ownership. Smart. Governance. Because I think that's my beef. Tell me what your beef is. That's fundamentally my beef is like, when we, that's why I wanted you to talk more about what what your name what you guys are naming as inclusion because there's a certain kind of student that's accepted in these these spaces and I'm not just talking about in PWI spaces I'm talking about HBCU spaces as well there's a certain kind of Jack and Jill student who's allowed in HBCUs there's a certain kind of pedigree that they come from and so they're diverse. But however, they're coming with a certain kind of button up that they fit in. And there is really not an intervention in the way that I think would support belonging and inclusion the way that you're trying to name it. The way that I think Robin, what Robin Kelly says, freedom dreaming. And freedom dreaming, he says, fundamentally is talking about these spaces that we belong to, but we can actually be who we are. That people don't clutch their pearls when, I just start eating chicken on a bone in public. 
Like that's my own internalized anti-blackness because I will never forget when I was at University of Alaska Fairbanks and that constantly was this, in a political science 301 class with Dr. Macbeth and I was in there with a whole bunch of white, middle-class, middle-aged men and they kept talking about chicken on a bone and what's professional. I was like, my mama make the best chicken on the bone. <laughs> like, I can't eat chicken on the bone now, like, now that I'm in these spaces, right? And so I'm 41 years old. I've been working in these spaces for 20 years. And I just now am like, I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat chicken on a bone. And that might not mean anything to anyone else, but I actually know what that did when I when some students like, oh, Miss Tanier, what you eating? I'm eating some lemon pepper wings, baby. And the key is to be themselves, to be yourself, to be ourselves when we come into institutions of higher education. But there's we very little sure. that like give that rewards that though. That's the point I'm trying to make. There's right. very little in these systems that reward you actually being independent. And of especially yourself. for selective institutions where the yes. Supreme Court decision is the most dominant. Yeah. You know, those institutions are still recruiting people from finishing high schools and other preparatory schools or very affluent neighborhoods with affluent school districts where, you know, there's already been a certain amount of uh, acculturation, yes. right? And because of that, um, we're still not allowing people who come from lower socioeconomic classes, from different cultural backgrounds to really fit in and mm -hmm. be themselves in our institutions, which would be inclusion. And so those students get there and those, those people get there and deeply struggle. And we don't have an answer for that because we've let you in, right? Like you are adding to our numbers, you are adding to our community. We've let you in, now you can become one of us. Now you can become one of us. And this goes back to my point that I made in the beginning, back to what I said about you, changing the policy, changing how we communicate to our alumni, changing the things that become Instagram stories. You know, we have to change like every aspect of how we do higher education if that next piece of inclusion is gonna kick in now that we have these so-called numbers. Let's listen to some more. And so as you, as you think about that, that's where I think the compositional diversity question and the, the critical mass issue and the benefits of affirmative action conversation intersect with the conversation that we were having earlier about anchor institution and um, the notion of a public-facing university. I want to marry those two discussions in a way that help us to understand if the benefits of affirmative action accrue primarily to whites first, and then to people of color, who are the people who make up that compositional diversity. What's going on there, and how do we, how do we make sure that that's not the only outcome that we're achieving? So one way to think about it is that when you have affirmative action and you open up some of these institutions to the diverse demography, to the talent pool that's been sidelined before, you, the institution itself begins to be a trusted agent in a community and of a community. So the compositional diversity 
that certainly benefits the educational experience of white students, faculty, and staff in an institution can be turned on its head mm -hmm. then to make the institution the kind of trusted agent in and of a community that really will benefit the community as well as the institution. Yeah. But that requires an active role on the part of the institution. It requires a mindset. Right. And that's when I say we get to anti-racism. Say more about that. Affirmative action is not anti-racism. Right. Affirmative action can go far to create the kinds of roadway to opportunity and potential social mobility, potential social mobility right. that we need to have. But it is not anti-racism until you then turn the table and create a trusted institution that goes in and of a community and takes on the systemic racism that is reflected in our institutions, right. but that is systematically engaging and embedded out there in the community and in the world. And that's what's so wonderful mm -hmm. about the work that you're doing in this institution, having served in an elite institution like Michigan and a big major public like the University of Illinois and um, others, and yet aren't our institutions very resistant to changing the status quo? I mean, in order for anti-racism to really take effect, we have to change so many things about the status quo that occurs in institutions of higher education. How do we start that process? We absolutely have to change the status quo. We have to change the status quo in the world and the status quo in the institution. Right. And until we think of those things as intimately tied, we're not going to make change. Let me give you a couple of examples. We are engaged in a process in Newark, part of a, of a large national network that Earl Lewis at the University of Michigan is actually running um, on university community reparations solutions. Mm. What, would, what would reparations look like yeah. for a city of Newark? And how does a university collaborate in talking about public history, in tracing from slavery to redlining, to predatory lending, to lack of, seg to segregation in schools and lack of access to higher education. How, do, how does a university contribute in conversation with community to that process? Right. In the process of doing our reparations project, we are teaming with the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice and the Newark Community Development Network doing university community dialogues oh, good. in all around all the neighborhoods in Newark. Well, one of the most interesting things is that the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice has been running a statewide advocacy to get a task force the way California has mm. on reparations in New Jersey. And they're running what they call Say the Word campaign. Say the word. Say the word. Say the word, reparations. Reparations, okay, say the say word. Say the word. People don't want to say the word. Right. Newarkers want to say the word. Uh -huh. 
But the world out there doesn't want to say the word. The politicians want to stay away from it. You got it. Yeah. Well, if a university as diverse as ours, and universities who are not as diverse as ours, really want to take seriously understanding how our scholars could contribute to the kind of visibility to make visible the invisible, as scholars talk about Mm -hmm. so often, we have to be willing to say the word. And it's similar to the question, our questions around anti-racism. Right? Yeah. That's just one example. Yeah. But from my perspective, the real issue of how you move an institution to take an anti-racist perspective, to say the word broadly in that sense, whether it's reparations or it's anti-racism, whatever your word is yeah. at that moment, What really has to happen is it has to be embedded in the identity and mission of the institution. It cannot just be about numbers, even though I've said numbers are critical. It has to be in the mission of the institution. So you have to change the practices that argue against it. The reason I give the say the word example is If it's so hard to even say the word, how are you then going to reward the scholar who studies that? Will they get tenure as quickly as the one who studies a more narrow and traditional Mm -hmm. aspect of their field? Cranking out those high-volume high prestige publications in a reputable flagship journal. If you're studying reparations and you can't even get people to say the word, how are you you going to... You know? Mm -hmm. So, that's just one example. Another example from my, you know, that I think is, again, very illustrative is we do a lot of work at Rutgers Newark in and in in and of Newark on policing, on community policing. We are the backbone for what's called the Newark Public Safety Collaborative, which is our criminal justice faculty and every community group you can imagine and the law enforcement and the mayor's office of violence prevention. And the point of the Newark Public Safety Collaborative is to create the kind of collaboration where our faculty can produce data that community groups and law enforcement and scholars can sit around the table together and find interventions for. Instead of having the intervention be defined either by the scholar or by law enforcement, it is defined in the context of conversations with the community groups who are living yes living the experience right. of crime that's public facing that's public facing mm-hmm. and that you can't do that unless you have some of the compositional diversity that affirmative action gives you right because you have no credibility 
And that's Did true you? for the scholars and the faculty as well as exactly. the students. And that's where I was going to go. Good. So one of the things that I hope comes out in the conversation, and I'm very biased on this thing, is that people really get behind place-based work, get behind the power of co-creation on the ground and universities opening themselves to the public outside-in perspective of what is needed. Because one of the things that's happening, I think, is that the national movement, the state-level movement of political divisiveness against anti-racism is taking over and coloring, if you will, the conversation on the ground locally. And that needs to be reversed because so much positive can happen when universities and communities collaborate in genuine, real ways, not as a cult of an expert, not coming in and saying, I can tell you how you should create. And I go back to policing, for example. In our Newark Public Safety Collaborative, we do what we call data-informed community engagement. People produce, our scholars are producing data about where crime's occurring, what are the characteristics of it. Those data are shared in community with a round table of people. And then the intervention is defined. It's not us telling how to do it, right? So what I hope comes out is this notion that we're really not the experts. The expertise is out there on the street, in the community, of the community. And you can define community very broadly. There are global communities we can be talking about. So people don't understand place-based work. Place has no boundaries. But place means you're digging in deep and opening yourself up to what is the lived experience on the ground. And my experience is that people are surprised by the kinds of collaborations that you can actually get going amongst people you would think couldn't care less about anti-racism. And that requires opening ourselves up in, in very exposed ways, right? We're not the expert anymore. We're not telling people what to do. We're listening. We're collaborating. We're defining solutions together. Mm -hmm. We're figuring out what it really feels like on the ground. When we do that, then we really become trusted collaborators with people you would not necessarily expect to be interested in anti-racism. We've had experiences in the city of Newark with some of the major Fortune 500 corporations who are at the table working on what I will call anti-racist equitable growth in Newark. Because we're all sitting around a table collaborating on what it means to really spur equitable growth in a black and brown city with huge talent sitting on the sidelines of opportunity. And there you have it. 
Chancellor Nancy Cantor, thank you so much for joining us mm -hmm. for the Thought Leader Summit as well as for our podcast. And um, in this conversation, I've learned so much just sitting here talking to you. I can't wait to continue the conversation as we move through the next few days. Thank well, you. It's been so wonderful much. talking with you. We want to thank you for joining us on Thought Leaders Unplugged. Subscribe to our podcast to stay connected for upcoming episodes where we learn from thought leaders, exchange ideas, and co-create an inclusive educational landscape. As we move forward, let's remember that advancing justice and equity on college and university campuses is not just a legal or political matter. It's a collective responsibility that requires continuous effort and unwavering commitment. This podcast is a production of the University of Maryland's Center for Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education. Acknowledgements include the following individuals, Daitu DeSasa, Tamia Webster, and Daniel Moore, and the entire team at the center for their contributions to the production, review, and editing of this podcast. This is Thought Leaders Unplugged. Mm -hmm.